Good morning. Thank you for being here today. My name is Andrew. Uh, I do want to give you a heads up from the start. This is first Sunday of March. So on the first Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So we'll be doing that at the end of our gathering. I'll give some more instruction uh, on that. Uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, you can feel free to participate with us or not. I'll, I'll tell you more at the end. Just want to give you all a heads up on that. We are in a series called Acts. The Church on the Move. We're working through this New Testament book of the Bible called Acts, which is uh, the full name is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, More appropriately, we could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We've sung about the Holy Spirit this morning. The evidence of the Holy Spirit moving in his church is very clear in the book of, of Acts. God births the church and he builds her through the faithful witness of his people. And what you see is that there are some individuals whom God uses to make a larger mark. Uh, he, he sets some uh, individuals apart to play a special role. We see this throughout human history, and we see this certainly in the book of, of Acts. And what we've been saying over the last few weeks as we've been in this book is what we see in the book of Acts is we see bold faith, we see intense opposition, and yet we see the explosive power of the gospel. And we're going to see all those things in particular today. We're going to be in, in Acts chapters 6 and 7. Um, but let me kind of give us a little bit of a rewind on this. Acts chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit come uh, at the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down, and for the first time, the Holy Spirit indwelt believers, filled believers. And though Jesus was no longer physically with his, his disciples, he was no longer physically present, his Holy Spirit was present within believers. And this is how the word of the gospel would get out. This is how God would build the church. This is how God has always chosen to build his church from beginning to end. And I want to give you this big thought, this big idea from the very beginning. God builds his church through spirit-filled believers. God builds his church through spirit-filled believers. He did that from the very start in Acts chapter 2. He does that up to this day. He, he builds his church through spirit-filled believers. So what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This is an incredible question. Back last year during our, what we called the year of discipleship, uh, on October 2nd, in fact, we went through a sermon series. Uh, we went through a, a, a sermon in particular that talked about uh, walking in victory. And, and I just want to share this bottom line with you. Uh, the way to victory is to walk in the Spirit. And we covered that back on October 2nd. There's a link to it in our digital bulletin sermon notes in case you want to go back. Uh, because we talked about the Holy Spirit and... Uh, you know, historically, Baptist churches don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. That's maybe one of those things that Baptist churches would tend to avoid. But we need the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see the activity of the Holy Spirit uh, in a big way today. But you see it all throughout the book of, of Acts. Uh, but today we're going to see a real-life example of what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that in the person of Stephen. So today's sermon is called Spirit-Filled Stephen. We'll be in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And I just want to give you a quick kind of rundown of the, the three points I'm going to hit this morning. What we see in Acts 6 and 7, it's really a short biography of the life of this man, Stephen. Uh, we see Stephen's selection uh, as a deacon. We see Stephen's speech. And then we see Stephen's stoning. And what you see, so Stephen is this incredible character who shows up in chapter 6 and by the end of chapter 7, he is, he's out of the story. 
His time is done. And it's a very short um, biography of his life. And yet it is so, so impactful. And, and I thought about this a lot because, you know, if you were to, uh, you know, in the, in the scheme of this large story, you know, if your story and my story was, you know, two chapters worth, what would it say about our lives? What kind of impact would it have? Uh, and I would, I would hope that we would trend in the direction of Stephen, uh, though his, his story, he is, he is certainly one of the men that God used in a very profound way in his short space of time. And yet my hope is that if we are filled by the Spirit, we'll have, we'll have an incredible God story in, in, the, in, the, in the words of our biography that God would pen. And so let's, let's begin in Acts chapter 6. The first point is this, Stephen's selection. Stephen's selection. We'll start in chapter 6. And, and so if you look at chapter 6 and 7, there are a lot of verses. I think this morning I'm only going to read probably 12 of the verses through those two chapters. So if you're going, how is Pastor Andrew going to cover two chapters in 30, 40, 60 minutes, whatever it is, like... Uh, I'm not reading all of it, okay? I'm hoping that you will be reading this tomorrow in your Bible reading plan. But Stephen's selection, what we, what we see in, in these first uh, 15 verses of Acts 6, this is a passage that we actually covered uh, last month on uh, January 22nd. We were talking about deacons. We were talking about leadership in the church. Uh, so we're not going to dive into this, but the first seven deacons we see uh, are selected or appointed or what we would call the prototype uh, for deacons in Acts chapter 6 because what we see in the beginning of chapter 6 is that disciples are increasing and because the number of disciples and followers of Jesus are increasing, the physical, tangible needs of the people are increasing. And so the solution for this was, you know, we saw some widows who were in need in Acts 6. Uh, God raises up this role of, of, of deacons and he, uh, he appoints these men to help fill the, and to serve the tangible needs of the church. So let's, let's just look at a couple of verses here. Acts 6, verse number 5. Uh, they pick seven men. It says in verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen. All right, so the first deacon they, they mention is this man named Stephen. And it describes him this way. It, it names all the other names, which I'm not going to read because I struggled through that back in January. But Stephen is the only one there's a description of. It says, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the what? The Holy Spirit. So when it describes him in a sentence, he's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And then if you drop down to verse number seven, so they appoint these seven men, they set them before the apostles. It's, as these deacons begin to serve the body, it says in verse seven, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So more and more disciples come into faith in Christ. Here, here's an important phrase I want you to catch. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, here's what you need to know is that these priests who came to faith in Christ, these were the, the, the individuals who were the most vehemently opposed to the gospel. These are the ones that, are, that are, are persecuting the early church. But God is so on the move and his spirit is working so much that these priests who were persecuting and coming against the apostles are now actually coming to faith in Christ. And so this is, this is a big deal. God is moving in a big way. But if you paid attention last week, 
God moves, what comes directly on the heels of God moving? Opposition. And you see it if you go, let's read verses 8 through 10. So God is moving in a big way. Verse number 8. And Stephen, another description here, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Are y'all noticing a theme regarding Stephen? Like he's full. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of of, uh, grace and power. And he's speaking with wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. So what we learn very quickly about Stephen is, man, he was a follower of Jesus who was full of the Spirit of God. And this opposition arises, they're, they're disputing with him, but they can't resist his wisdom with which he's speaking. Verse, verses 11 through 15, then they secretly instigated men who said, and pay attention to these words, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple and the law. For we have heard him say, and pay attention there, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here's this opposition that, that rises up. They're disputing with him. They're trying to debate him. But it says, man, they could not resist or withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. And so these these individuals here that have risen up against him that are presenting this opposition, they say, man, we can't debate him. We can't win this debate. So what are we going to do? Let's discredit him. Let's tell some stories. Let's say that we're hearing some things and they charge him with these accusations. Now, I want to read you a quote here by David Guzik. He says this, The opponents of Stephen could not win a fair fight, so they used lies and secret strategies to shape popular opinion against Stephen. Popular opinion can be easily shaped. The same crowds that praised Jesus soon called for his crucifixion. Then they loved the apostles, but now cry out against Stephen. This is why we should never let popular opinion shape the vision or focus of the church, but let it rest on God's eternal word. So here's the opposition. Here's the charge, the accusation against Stephen. They say he's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the law. He's speaking against the customs of of Moses to which we've given our lives. They they accuse him of saying that this Jesus that they're preaching is doing away with, with Moses and with the Old Testament. 
Man, he's come to, to turn everything upside down. And here's the truth about what Stephen was saying. He, he wasn't speaking against the Old Testament. He wasn't speaking against the law and the customs. What he was saying was, no, no, Jesus, this Jesus who has come, Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus is greater than this temple. And Jesus is greater than your traditions and your customs. He is greater than. He's not doing away with the Old Testament. No, he is the continuation and the fulfillment and the embodiment of everything that the prophets were preaching and teaching for generations and generations. He's not doing away with it. He is the continuation, the fulfillment, the embodiment of it. But what did they do? They twisted his words. And this is so significant. And this isn't, honestly, this isn't any different in our day. That, that some things are said and some words are twisted to, to come in opposition against. Sometimes opposition, you see it here, it comes through secrets, it comes through whispers, it comes through stirring up, it comes through lies, and this is how the enemy comes against the church. Sometimes he uses that from outside the church, sometimes he uses that from within the church. And so I do want to say this as your pastor and shepherd, I give you permission that if you ever hear something that you go, wow, that sounds weird, that sounds accusatory. If somebody says, we have heard this, you may go, okay, who's the source? What is this about? Does this sound in line like with what we're experiencing and seeing in the church? And if it doesn't sound like it lines up, I give you permission. And in fact, I implore you and encourage you. Talk to me, talk to a leader of this church and go, hey, here's what I'm hearing. Is this true? All right, you, you hear that? Because this is the way the enemy works in opposition to the church. Stirs up things, lies, false witnesses. And this is what has taken place as God moves, that naturally opposition rises up in the face of God's movement. But here's what you see in verse number 15. So they're throwing out these accusations. Here's what it says, verse 15. And gazing at him, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this isn't saying that, oh, his face was all chubby and cute and squishy and all. He's like a cute little angel now. No, like actually, when you look in the scriptures, when it describes angels, actually angels were more like warriors than they were cute, chubby little cherubim, okay, um, floating on clouds and playing harps. No, they were warriors, but there was something about his, his face and his countenance. In the face of opposition, in the face of lies, his face was, was radiant, like it reflected the presence of God. Like the only thing that I can think of in scripture is Moses in Exodus 34 when he came down off the mount. Remember when he, he was in the presence of God and he came down and everyone was freaked out because his face was glowing. Why? Because he was in the presence of, of God. It was like there's this perfect peace and confidence and trust in God that Stephen possessed in this moment, that they were like, man, we're saying all these things and throwing all of this at you, and yet there's this peace and contentment and trust and confidence that he has, that nothing was, was shaking him. So this is, is Stephen, who in, in essence, he, he knows that this path is not, is not going anywhere productive, but 
in the face of all this, he in essence says, God, my, my life is in your hands and I trust you. And so his face was like the face of an angel. And so Stephen's selection, this first section, he's selected as, as a deacon, but the reason he was selected was because, don't miss this, he was a spirit-filled man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So moving into the second part of, of, of this, this uh, biography of Stephen, chapter 7, Stephen's speech, Stephen's speech, which is really from verse number 1 through verse 53. Um, and, and I'm not going to read through this, and I would encourage you to do this in your reading tomorrow. Uh, but what you see in it, right from the get-go, verse number 1, it says, the high priest said, are these things so? The high priest is listening to these accusations, Accusations. He sees Stephen and his, his angel face, and he says, okay, okay, Stephen, is this true? Are these things so? And what you see from verse number two, really all the way through verse number 50, is Stephen gives this lengthy, masterful defense uh, of the faith. And he really, he like goes all the way back. It's really like this review of, of Israel's history. And it goes all the way back to, to Abraham and the patriarchs. And he's taking them all the way through this review of, of Jewish history, which, by the way, they knew the history, right? They had studied it, were very aware of it. But he's taking them all the way back. And he's, he's kind of connecting these dots through the story of, of Israel's history. And, and I just want to take a second to kind of summarize what what he's talking about here. You know, I recently listened to a video by a guy, uh, a pastor that uh, I follow and respect. His name is Tim Keller. And he talked about the gospel as, as a principle and the gospel as a story. That, that really when we talk about the gospel, there's two things and we don't want to miss either of these. The gospel as a principle is this, that we are saved not by our good works or our moral performance, but by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. In other words, we are sinners. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves through our good works or our uh, you know, excellent moral performance. No, no, no. It is only through the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We see that displayed on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, that we are saved by Christ's work, not our work. This is the gospel as a, a principle, right? But then there's this, this other side of it when we talk about the gospel where the gospel is a story. And you've heard, you've heard me talk about this, but we, we talk about it in four parts, creation, fall, rescue or redemption and restoration. This whole story of God, how God has been working from the start. He created us for his glory, to enjoy him, to be in relationship with him. But because of sin, we have fallen. We are separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus came to redeem us and rescue us through his death on the cross. And there is coming an ultimate restoration of all things. And this is the story of God. And we can't miss that whole story of God. If we miss either the gospel in principle or the gospel as a story, like we're missing out on what God is trying to communicate to us. And, and what what Stephen does is he kind of walks back through really the story of the gospel and he's connecting the dots and, and throughout his story, which by the way, this is a story that God invites us into. This isn't just some, some Jewish history. This is the story of God who from 
beginning to end, his, it's his redemptive work in the world through Jesus. And it's a story that he invites every single one of us into, to participate in and to receive the goodness of God's grace. But Stephen is, is, is tracing the, the story and he focuses on two men in this passage, Joseph and Moses. Moses. Now, let me, Joseph and Moses. <laughs> That's kind of how it started coming out there. Uh, Joseph and Moses. So if you think about the story, and he, he kind of delineates this in, the, in this, his speech, Joseph and Moses were both raised up by God. They were rejected by Israel but then they were ultimately exalted as deliverers and saviors of God's people. Does that sound familiar? It's, it's really a picture. Both of them are a picture, a type of, of Christ. The comparison is clear, though he doesn't, he doesn't directly link them to Christ, but the, the picture, the analogy, the comparison is clear that God's prophets have always been mistreated and rejected by their own people. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's, he's connecting the dots and he's saying that Jesus is the last in this long line of, of prophets. And, and so he's, he's telling them the story. He's connecting the dots. Now, I want to go to, to verses 51 through 53 as we kind of, he, he walks through this whole history, but then he kind of charges them They've accused him and charged him of some things, and now he's walked through the, the gospel story. Now he's going to accuse them of, of some things here. He comes to the end of his speech, and he, he says this. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. I decided that's how I'm going to end every sermon from now on. How would you all feel about that? That would be kind of abrasive, right? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, all of them, right? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So there is this like scathing kind of conclusion and charge that Stephen wraps up this speech with. His charge against the people, you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. These are, we don't have time to go through this, but these are really Old Testament kind of rebukes that he's, he's throwing out to these Jewish folks that you're obstinate, you're stiff-necked like your fathers were, you're, you're unclean in your heart towards the Lord. He, he says you're just like your fathers, except here's the difference. They persecuted all the prophets who were announcing the coming of the righteous one. And yet here you are, you haven't just persecuted the prophets announcing the coming of the righteous one. No, you've actually murdered, betrayed and murdered the righteous one himself. You are guilty of this. You are just like your fathers. And so, man, he comes at them with with guns blazing, you have murdered the Messiah. You accuse me of throwing out the law, and yet you are the very people that God delivered his law to, and you haven't kept it. Ooh, man, he, 
he comes at them and he is, again, all this time full of the Holy Spirit. But did you notice, really, there's a really scathing comment right in the midst of this. I want to go back to it. Verse number 15, or sorry, 51. Here is the, the truth behind all of it. He said, you always what? Resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. There is all of a sudden this incredibly dramatic contrast. Here is Stephen, who is always ruled by the Spirit, who is always full of the Spirit, and yet here are, here's the opposition, the ones who are resisting him, and they always, they're not ruled by the Spirit, they resist the Spirit. They are in opposition to the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen, Stephen's speech, it's, it's marked by boldness. Why? Because he is full of the Holy Spirit. He is spirit-filled, even in the midst of, of this speech. Now, we're going to move into the third and really the final act of, of this biography and the story of Stephen. Stephen's stoning. Stephen's stoning. And we're going to read Verses 54 through 60. So starting in verse number 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And I just want to pause there for a second. Like this response to me, every time I read it is just startling, isn't it? It kind of sounds like, it kind of sounds like a toddler temper tantrum, to be honest, right? It's like all of a sudden they're, uh, what's it say, they, they were enraged, um, they get into this rage and this huff, and then they grind their teeth at him. I don't know if you're, you're a parent or if you've ever had a child grind their teeth at you. <laughs> um, that means I am, I am boiling hot mad. <laughs> I do not want to hear anything that you have to say, right? They are enraged. They grind their teeth at him, verse 55. But he, Stephen... How does it describe him here? Full of the what? Holy Spirit. Even being confronted with rage and they're grinding their teeth at him. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Y'all, this is only the Holy Spirit could give you patience in this moment. If my child responds this way, it's only the Holy Spirit that will give me patience with my child. Amen. Full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of, of God. So he, he, so he sees, he says, I see. He, he's full of the Spirit. He gazes into heaven. He says, I see the glory of God. I see uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he verbalizes this. He says this to the, to, to the, the crowd. He says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And y'all, when he said that, that was too much. He had crossed the line. To say that he saw Jesus standing in a position of authority at the right hand of God. Y'all, the same response came to Jesus uh, back in, in the book of, of Matthew where Jesus made this declaration that he would be at the right hand of the Father. And that was, to them, that was blasphemy. To say that you're on that level, that you would be at the right hand of, of God, 
Jehovah God, no way. That was too much at this point. Here's verse number 57. And so here's the response. Again, like, like mad, enraged toddlers, it says, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. It's kind of like, the, la, 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 I don't hear you, right? I don't want to hear what you have to say. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. It was like an out of control mob. It was like a violent stampede. They were so angry and so enraged by what he was saying. And I just want to say this kind of as, as a point of, of thought and application. That sometimes resisting the Holy Spirit, actually really anytime we resist the Holy Spirit, it can lead to erratic irrational behavior. You go, what would lead a group of people to do that? They were resisting the Holy Spirit. And y'all, I would, I, would, I would guess, I would venture to say that God sometimes looks at us when we resist, when his spirit is trying to speak something to us and we don't want to obey, we don't want to do what he, what he tells us to do, that God looks at us like a little toddler throwing a temper tantrum, going, no, 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 God, I don't hear you. I know you've said it. I know you've said it over and over. I know your word says it, but I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I don't have anything to do with what you're telling me to do because it's not what I want to do. And that, y'all, that always leads to crazy behavior, erratic, irrational behavior. When you look at somebody's life and you're like, whoa, they are out of control. What is going on? Here's what I can promise you. They are not responding to the Holy Spirit in their life. If the Holy Spirit is even part of their life, if they're even a child of God, they're not responding to the Holy Spirit. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see to an extreme degree here because we have this whole mob full of people who are resisting God's Spirit. And so verse 58 then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that's... When the Bible uses that language, it means he died in that moment. And so they stoned him to death. Stephen becomes what we would know as the first martyr of the church, the first martyr of the followers of, of Jesus. And the thing that is so remarkable to me about Stephen, um, like his boldness, yes, um, all of that, but the way in which he died to me, is what is so uh, convicting. The, the mob's rage was met with peace. It was met with, with confidence. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was gazing into heaven. Y'all, his eyes were fixed on Jesus to the very last breath. He endured. This reminds me of Hebrews 12, where it says that Jesus... Uh, endured to the end uh, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is now set down at the right hand of God. And Stephen, even in his dying moments, he pointed to Jesus in, in word and deed, 
in word and deed. He, he exemplified and he followed the example of the Lord Jesus in, in word. He says, hey, and this is just like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen in these final moments says, forgive them. Don't hold the sin against them. My murderers don't hold their sin against them. He, he, he pointed to Jesus in his word and he pointed to them in his deed because just like Jesus, he laid down his life. He sacrificed his life for the sake of, of the gospel. And I want to read you this quote from an early church father from the second century. His name was Tertullian and he was addressing the Roman Empire of his day and he said this, we are not a new philosophy, talking about the way of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. We're not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more, <laughs> the more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians, your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us, and you frustrate your own purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do, for we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals, and when they find out, they join us. They join us. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of, of the church. You know what that's saying? It's at the it's, at the, it's because of the blood of, of martyrs like Stephen that allowed the gospel to go forth into all the world, that allowed the gospel to reach us because men like Stephen were willing to use their short two chapters to say, I'm going to give it all for the gospel. And if I lose my life, I lose my life, but the gospel goes forward. And so he comes to the end of his life and he gives his life for the sake of the gospel. And he says, and I just want to kind of focus on this phrase for a second, that he said, he said he saw Jesus standing. Why was Jesus standing in this moment? And this is just kind of a little rabbit trail for a second, because every time you see Jesus in the scriptures at the right hand of, of the Father, how is he positioned? He's seated. But this one, this one time, this one and only time, he's, he's standing at the right hand of the Father. Why was he standing? Now, this is something for speculation. We, the scriptures don't give us a direct answer on this. Uh, a couple things. One thing I think of that you, you'll hear commentators say is because he was, he was standing in solidarity with Stephen. He was cheering him on. He was applauding him. He was welcoming him. He was strengthening Stephen. So Stephen is, is looking at his Savior who is standing. Really, as the first martyr of the church, he's, man, he's cheering him on. But my mind always goes to what my, my pastor, Pastor Mark, would say. He said that in this moment, that he's offering, he's making this invitation, this offer of repentance to this crowd, to these people, to the nation of Israel. Where if, if the nation of Israel, if God's people at this moment would have repented of their resistance to the Holy Spirit, if they would have repented of, of crucifying the Savior, at this moment, if the, if the nation of Israel would have turned to Jesus, he was standing and ready to return and to, to establish his kingdom. If only they would have repented. Because everything was met. He, he could have at that moment returned all of history is done. He would have established his kingdom through his people. But what did they do? 
they resisted the gospel. And because they resisted, the gospel went forward. It went from Jews, and now this transition begins immediately. And you see it in chapter 8, this transition. The, the Jews have said, nope, we, we don't want it. And then the gospel transitions to the Gentiles, to you and me. Y'all, this is, this is big stuff, isn't it? What a story that Stephen is right in the middle of. Stephen was spirit-filled even unto death. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So how do we live in light of this? Let me give us three quick thoughts. How are we to live in light of, of all that we see in the life of, of Stephen? Let me bring you back to that first big idea, that first big point that God builds his church through spirit-filled believers. God builds his church through spirit-filled believers, not just Stephen, not just the apostles, but he will build his church through those of us who allow him to fill us with his spirit and use us. And what I love about this is what this tells us is that any of us can be used by God. He wants to use any and every single one of us because it's not about our skill or our ability or um, our winsomeness. No, it's about his spirit filling us, the power of his spirit. To be filled with, is, is to be, or to be spirit filled is to be ruled by the spirit, to let him have control, to be under his influence. Ephesians 5, 18 compares being filled with the spirit. It contrasts it with being filled with with alcohol, being drunk with wine. Don't be drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled or controlled by under the influence of the Spirit. He, he, listen, he poured out his Spirit at Pentecost. The reason he did that in Acts chapter 2 was so that he could continue his work on earth through not just himself and his physical body, but through his church, the body of Christ filled with his spirit. This is how God builds the church. And so by his spirit, we are empowered to live. But by his spirit, can I just say this? We are also empowered to die. And I look at the life of Stephen, and, and, I, and I, here's my thought about Stephen. I don't want to die like Stephen. I don't want to die in that manner, right? But on the other side of that coin, I want to die like Stephen in the fashion that I, would, that I would be willing to stand up and die if it meant that God could use my life to, to propel the gospel. By his spirit, we're empowered to live and to die for the gospel. So here's a second thought of application. The last place you want to be found, the last place you want to find yourself is resisting God. The very last place you want to find yourself is resisting God. And so let me implore you this morning, I don't know where you're at today, but don't be stiff-necked. Don't shut your ears and drown out his voice. Don't, don't run off erratically and irrationally in your own direction. Man, I implore you this morning, don't resist the Holy Spirit. He wants to do a work in you, and he wants to do a work through you. Acts 5, 38 and 39, this was in the passage last week. I just want to read it because uh, I think it's so powerful, and I can't get it out of my head. It, this is when you know, they're coming at Peter and John, and this, this revered uh, Pharisee Gamaliel stands up, and he says to the, to the rest of the council, 
Verse 38, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone, let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In other words, if it's from God, you can't stop it. Nothing you do will stop it. You may, may, you might even be found opposing God. This is not the place you want to find yourself in. So Gamaliel says, hey, if it's from man, it'll fall apart. But if it's from God, man, you can't stop it. So don't try because you may be found opposing God. And really, we don't have time to touch on this, but earlier in Acts 5, we skipped the story. Ananias and Sapphira, a couple of disciples who held back part of the proceeds from God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, to God. And I don't know if you read Acts 5, but you know what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They drop dead. God says, done. And, and, and this doesn't always happen in the case of lying to God, but man, God was on the move. He was building his church. And here come some of his own people who are resisting the Holy Spirit. This is, just, this is a big picture example of what happens, of what could happen when you oppose the work of God. And God is using this as an example. He's saying, don't resist my Holy Spirit. Don't lie to my Holy Spirit. Don't oppose the work of God because nothing is going to stop it. Nothing is going to stop it. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, enough of that. Last third thing, third thing, third thing. Even in this moment of tragedy, this is the final thing. Even in this moment of tragedy, we get a glimpse of God's amazing grace. And I don't have time for this. Y'all, I'm taking too much time right now, but I don't want to stop. Even in the midst of this tragedy, the death of one of God's beloved saints. We get a glimpse of God's amazing grace because there's a name that is dropped in the midst of this story. Did you see who Stephen's garments were laid at the feet of? A man named Saul, who is the church's greatest persecutor, who was one responsible for killing Christians. He was trying to exterminate, like that Tertullian spoke of. He was trying to exterminate the way of Jesus. And he was, he was there. The first mention of this guy Saul is right here. And it starts out chapter 8 by saying that Saul stood approving of this execution. And what we will see very shortly, in short order, in Acts chapter 9, we're going to see the story of Saul. Does a 180. And this one who is opposing the work of God ends up becoming the one that God used most greatly to propel the work of God in the world because of the grace of God turned his life around. And it's an amazing, amazing story. I want to read you Paul's own testimony. 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 16. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Can you see why it would be so easy for him to declare that I'm the worst sinner of all? Because he was the one who was standing and approving of the execution of Stephen. It's no wonder he felt this much conviction about his sinful state. He says, but, verse 16, but I received what? 
mercy. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Man, because of how God used this man, Saul, who became Paul, y'all, the gospel got to us. In the midst of this tragedy, in the story, God used it for good. And he propelled the gospel forward. And it was all, this was all part of Stephen's story. He didn't get to see the fulfillment of all of this. All he did was be faithful to Jesus. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. He was willing to give his life for Jesus. And God used his life to propel the gospel forward. And God can do that with you. God can do that with me. God can do that with his church. Amen. And so I want to pray. We're going to take a couple minutes just to worship the grace of this God through the Lord's Supper. Why don't you stand and let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the biography, the life, and the death of, of Stephen. Thank you for this example that we can look to. Thank you that in the midst of, of persecution and opposition, God, you are working. In fact, you use opposition over and over and over and over to get the gospel out. And so, God, thank you for this example. Thank you for Stephen. Lord, thank you for your spirit. Your spirit is the one who prompted all of this. Your spirit is the one who promoted all of this. Your spirit is the one who pushes the gospel forward through willing vessels, through willing lives. And Lord, Jesus is our ultimate example. We want to follow the example of, of Stephen, and yet we, we want to be like Stephen and looking to Christ. And we want to follow Stephen and being filled by your spirit. And so, Lord, this morning we do want to say thank you for the truth of the gospel that we have received. Thank you for the good news that takes sinful wretches and transforms them into beloved saints, beloved sons and daughters. And so this morning we want to worship you because of what Jesus has done. We want to thank you that we have your spirit who dwells in us, who fills us, who empowers to live for you. And should you call us to it, who empowers us to die for you. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice in the magnitude of your sacrifice, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. You are a good God who has shown us mercy and grace when we have least deserved it. And so this morning we celebrate the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.